When he, Jesus, had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men, coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled. And they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the two, the, I'm sorry, behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from the region. Let's pray. Father, we love you and Lord, we're grateful for your word. And Lord, we have lessons to learn um, in this story. As we have said, it's, it's the point of the chapter to make much of Christ. And we want to maintain that. And as we go along with the disciples, Lord, we want our vision of you to increase as it was for them, that as you exercise authority over more and more and more things, things totally beyond our ability to affect, Lord, help us to understand more of who you are. So Lord, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Turn back, if you would, to verse 28. As we go through all of this, I think it's important to kind of imagine the scene. Uh, this is an interesting story. It says, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men, and they were coming out of the tombs, a graveyard, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Now, when Matthew reports, uh, he says that they came to the country of the Gergesenes. Mark and Luke say they came to the country of the Gadarenes. There's probably two ways of referring to that area. Gadara was actually the capital, and so the country of the Gergesenes was under their jurisdiction, and so it was the country of the Gadarenes. But the Gergesenes were the people of the immediate area, the local area. It's only about six miles sort of south and east of Capernaum, where Jesus had come from. And so it's also the country of the Gergesenes. Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, being a man of legal details, probably referred to the area in its official sense, while Mark and Luke used probably what was the local vernacular, and uh, it's common everywhere. Uh, today, the ruins of Gersa are there. Um, you can go there and visit. It's pronounced Kursa if you uh, happen to go to Israel. If you say Gersa, you'll end up probably in the, uh, the West Bank or something. So the location of Gersa is fitting for a number of reasons. Uh, there's a steep hillside there that slopes into the Galilee, as mentioned in the narrative. And there are caves there that were commonly used for tombs, also mentioned in our story. Now, in the last section that we covered last Sunday, when Jesus calmed the winds and the waves, things for the disciples were astounding. It was, it was amazing. But in this final section, things are just weird, okay? Things are, are downright spooky. Just imagine the whole thing. As we follow the story uh, so far in the narrative, it's either twilight or the sun is just 
starting to come up. The latter seems to be preferable. And of arriving on the other side of the Galilee, Jesus and the disciples were greeted by two violent, exceedingly fierce, demon-possessed men who have come running out of a graveyard. I should teach this on Halloween instead. It was morning of the living dead. <laughs> According to all the accounts, these men were naked. They were wild, unkept, and they were bearing in their bodies these self-inflicted wounds from cutting themselves. And they were known for crying out from the tombs, both night and day, from their torment. Now imagine how freaky that must have been, hearing them crying, wailing throughout the night. What would you say to your children? Don't go there, be one. Just, just ignore that sound and go to sleep. Yeah. The men of the city had tried to tame them, or at least contain them with shackles and chains. But the men, the two demon-possessed men, would eventually pull the chains and the shackles apart and free themselves. They were a danger to themselves, uh, and they were so violent that people could not pass by that way. They would have to go around the long way. And the disciples, of course, these were fishermen, and, and they traded with all the various communities around the lake. They were probably aware of these men, at least had probably heard stories about them and the danger. They knew enough to stay away, but because, of, but because of who Jesus is and because he feared nothing and cared for everyone, he insisted that we go that way, right? It's just like Jesus. So when he stepped off the boat, this was his greeting, two naked, wild-eyed men charging the beach. The disciples are probably still in the boat, okay? <laughs> and suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, before they started speaking, Mark tells us that they started screaming, started screaming, at which time Jesus told the unclean spirit to come out of them, and then they fell down on their faces before him. The text says they worshiped him, but the, 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 the Greek word is proskuneo, so they, they're on their faces to the ground, okay? And that's when they said, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God, son of the most high God, in fact, as Luke reports, which is an ancient title for God in Genesis, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, there's a lot of interesting details uh, about that I think are worth noting. I wish I had more answers for you. It all makes much of Jesus. Notice that the demons knew the son of God. Now, they had never seen him in human form before, but they knew it was him. How? I have no idea. Okay, something in their spiritual intuition or something. Something about Jesus. They also understood that they should not stand in his presence. So they wisely and cautiously went to their faces. Yeah. They were also deeply afraid of Jesus. And in the text, it reveals that it was Jesus who had the authority to dispossess them. Okay from their tormented host, and they knew that it was him who would one day torment them, literally vex or torture. Now, as to the first, that they knew who Jesus is, I think is astounding. Um, we don't know how they knew, but they did. They could somehow discern that their creator was present. And though they were you know, angelic beings of some kind, albeit distorted by sin, who were acting in rebellion against God, they feared Jesus and they thought it wise to get on their faces at his feet and begin to plead for mercy. 
Now, this gets better as we go through the account. For whatever reason, Matthew does not record all of the story for us. From, from Mark's account, we learn that Jesus inquired about the demon's name. Now, not to gain power over the demon, as some so-called exorcists say. I don't know, have you guys heard that? You get the, if you find a demon-possessed person, you ask us its name. That way you can gain power over it, because when you have somebody's name, it's like when you, know, you, you talk to somebody on the phone with the phone company or your internet, you always ask them their name, and it gives you power over them. You need to understand something. If Jesus can gain power over anything, it means that he doesn't already possess all power over everything. And scripture insists that he does, okay? So, no, he wasn't trying to gain power. And if you meet a demon-possessed person, please don't have a conversation with them, okay? The inquiry here is made for our sakes. It's to fill us in on what more is going on. And the response from the demon was, my name is, is Legion, for we are many. So these, these two demon-possessed men were not each possessed by one demon, but by a legion of demons. Now, a Roman legion exceeds 6,000 men. 6,000 men. Now, spirits do not take up space. So it was no problem for them to cohabit the same person or a couple persons. But there they were, over 6,000 demons trembling before Jesus, and they're begging him for mercy. Mercy for what? The entire legion is begging Jesus not to torture them before the appointed time. That's kind of exciting. You see, they know that their days are numbered, that God has appointed a time for them to be punished for their wickedness. And they know that Jesus is the one who is going to bring this torment upon them. Yeah, in our text... The demons were afraid that Jesus had moved the date. Hold on a second, we had a deal. (laughs) Thought he had come early to deliver their judgment. So they screamed in horror and they begged him for mercy. Over 6,000 of them. Perhaps you're not following me. Imagine an army of of, of over 6,000 men of war trembling and bowing down before one man begging him to spare their lives. The, the fear of their future torment has them screaming. You guys, that's how afraid they are of Christ. They're deathly afraid of him. You guys, another level of Jesus' power is on display here. But not over the natural world, but over the spiritual, which we know little about. But there are some things that we do know. You know, from the book of Daniel, we know that when one angel stands against a demon who is a fallen angel. They're somewhat equally matched at times, though one may overpower the other, as Gabriel was for a time. Of course, until Michael, the stud, shows up and delivers him. Okay, you got to read the account. Go find it yourself. It's in the book of Daniel. That's how I get you to read the whole book of Daniel, you see. It's in Daniel. There are certainly angels of varying power and strengths, as is the case with the archangel Michael. But these spirits have the ability to resist one another and cause problems for each other. It's happening now. It has happened. It will happen. But what we learn from the scriptures is that there is no man, no man, no ordinary man that is a match for a demon, well less over 6,000 of them. Under certain circumstances, demons may possess unbelievers, as we see here, controlling them, controlling their lives. We'll see it other places in the Gospels. We know that a 
A demon-possessed person can break shackles and chains, as our narrative says. The, a more comical story is in the book of Acts, chapter 19. The, the seven sons of Sceva tried to cast out a demon, but instead the demon-possessed man laid a beating on them, on all seven of them, and sent them running for their lives naked and bruised. So in the conflict, the demon-possessed man stole all their clothes and then laid a beating on them and ran them out of the house. One man against seven, one demon-possessed man. So demons all by themselves are much more powerful than any mere man. And yet we find Jesus standing alone against a legion of them, over 6,000. And with all their numbers and with all their might, they know that they're outgunned. And they knew that it would be no good for them to run. So they beg, they beg. James comments on this saying, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Perhaps there's a lesson to be learned from demons in regard to their knowledge of Jesus, their understanding of his, his majesty, the, his infinite power, his authority, that he's to be bowed down before, that he's to be feared. Of course, they must fear him in a different way than the believer does. It's very interesting. It is because of their knowledge in our story that they have bowed down and trembled before him. What is it that we do not know or what is it that's lacking in our experience that we do not behave in a similar fashion? Yeah. And mind you, this wasn't the first time these demons had bowed down before Christ, but it may have been the first time they bowed before him as his enemies. You know, before Satan rebelled in heaven and drew a third of the angels with him, these principalities would join together and worship Christ in heaven. He created them. We mentioned Colossians 1.16 last week, but only portion of it. It says, for by him, it's, the context is Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and or powers. All things were created through him and for him. Principalities and powers refer to angelic hosts, whether they're demonic or angelic, okay? They were all created by Jesus and for his glory. But those who rebelled, these demons are now the objects of his future wrath, his vengeance. He will torment them just as they were afraid of, okay? Just as they feared he would. And this addresses another level of Jesus's power for how do you torment a spirit which has no body? I have no idea. It's certainly beyond our ability but Jesus will see to it that all of them encounter divine justice for what they've done. You know, Jesus taught that Gehenna, we frequently think that hell is the final resting place of the wicked or that outer darkness is, but actually hell is swallowed up into Gehenna and Gehenna is the final, it's not a resting place for wicked people, but it's the final destination of the wicked. But Jesus taught that Gehenna, the lake of fire, was originally created for Satan and his angels, where they will be cursed in everlasting fire. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. What is implied there is that Gehenna was not created originally for man. But like Satan, man has rebelled and uh, will follow in his footsteps if he's not redeemed. So this, oh, this, this issue of Gehenna, this is what the demons in our story are so afraid of, something they, they know that they will not avoid. They're just trying to delay it trying to stay away from it, to stave it off. All Jesus 
has to do is give the word and they're done and they know it. You know, just as Jesus told the wind and the waves to stop and they stopped, these demons would be cast out forever just at a matter of his will. But good for them, the time of their banishment had already been appointed. God doesn't move his appointments. It's decreed. But Jesus' presence that day on the beach, I think it served as a good reminder that the date had not been forgotten. It's on the horizon. It's coming. The text says, now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Now, I don't understand all of this. Something about being disembodied really concerned these demons. They didn't want to just go out. They wanted to go out and back into something else. They knew that Jesus wasn't going to let them go into other people. And so they said, what about the swine? This large herd of pigs. Mike, Mike, not Mike, but Mark. Mark 5.13 tells us that there were about 2,000 of them. 2,000 swine. Yeah. So with the word, Jesus commands this legion of swine to enter the pigs. And he said to them, go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. You know, just as these poor men had essentially gone crazy because of these, you know, these parasitic demons, the swine lost their minds. And then like lemmings, you guys know what lemmings are, right? The creature that every so many years in Alaska just throws itself into the ocean. Have you guys seen lemmings? You got to watch Discovery Channel. It's like mass suicide. So when all is said and done, these demons just end up with dead hosts. Then those who kept them fled. And they went away into the city and they told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. So the men who tended the swine, now they had probably observed from a distance Jesus' interaction with the demons because in the other accounts, they know all these details when they run into the city. Uh, I imagine that the demoniacs had initially got their attention when they started screaming. So there on the hillside, there's all this screaming going on, and they're watching from a distance. They see as the men come rushing out of the cemetery, the graveyard, and toward Jesus, and instead of attacking him, they bow down before him. They're very aware of these men and what they're capable of, what they've done. So they're very interested, right? What's going on here? And then at the end of the conversation, the men are dispossessed of their demons and the demons go into the swine and they're drowned, the, the swine they're in charge of. <laughs> and so it says the men fled to the city. Now the word flee always carries with it, carries with it the idea of, of fleeing for refuge for one's life to escape danger. It doesn't mean that they went for a run. It's not the word for just jogging, okay? The word implies danger. This kind of running is motivated by fear. So the men, after witnessing what they did, they're frightened. It's not every day that 2,000 squealing pigs commit suicide. Things are strange right now. They didn't know how to interpret what they just witnessed with the demoniacs or with the pigs. It was frightening. So they go into the village and they report what had happened, both to the swine and to the men who had formerly haunted the tombs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart 
excuse me, from the region. That's an abbreviation of what happened. The other accounts tell us that when they came to where Jesus was, they saw the demon-possessed men sitting, clothed, and in their right minds. And it says they too, when they saw that, they were filled with fear. Filled with fear. What's going on here? Now, the scene, you guys, would have been unforgettable. As the city comes out, or as the villagers come out of the village, and they're making their way toward Jesus, there to their right are some 2,000 pigs floating in the water, and they're washing up on the beach. Now, that's a strange and eerie sight indeed. 2,000 of them. Imagine how they would fill the bay. 2,000. Obviously, a fortune worth of swine, which no doubt belonged to some that were in the crowd. And there next to Jesus, they see the two men who they had failed to bind with chains, formerly untamable, haunting the tombs, posing a threat to everyone who passed through there, but now they're sitting. They have clothes on and they're in their right minds. You guys, it's an understatement to say that curiosity abounded. And mind you, the people from the city, they're not Jews. Okay, let the pigs be the first indication that they're not. All right. But on the eastern side of the lake, which was territory that God had promised to Israel that they did not yet have. It was Gentile territory. They had no understanding of the Bible. These were pagans. And they believed in all kinds of dark and silly superstitions. So making sense of all this was more than they could handle from their religious worldview. Who is this Jew named Jesus? What did he want? Why was he here? What does all this mean? How did it happen? And if he had the power to kill 2,000 swine, what else was he capable of? This is a very strange thing for them. None of it fits into the religious framework, and so they're afraid. Now, some commentators reduce uh, the fear of these people to that of their financial loss in the pigs. I think there's much more going on here. This, This is a religious kind of fear. It's a superstitious sort of fear that's gripped these people. Yes, what has happened will affect their financial situation. But at the moment, they understood that there was a power at work that was beyond their control. And it was making them feel very, very uneasy. If it was simply a financial issue, why not just report him to the authorities? Other commentators mock these people and say that they were more concerned about pigs than people. They were more concerned about swine than the Savior. I know it all sounds catchy, but I don't think it can quite be reduced to that. It's too simplistic. It doesn't account for the superstition that's deeply rooted in the pagan psyche. 2,000 of their pigs dead. They're washing up on the shore. That could mean nothing but a bad omen to them. Okay? A judgment from the gods. Panic was spreading like wildfire. They're terrified. And like the demons, they then beg Jesus. But instead of begging Jesus to allow them to depart, Like the demons did, they beg Jesus to depart from the region. They're pleading with him. He's too dangerous. We have to get him out of here before the gods do something worse. And so Jesus departed. Uh, He did not insist where he was not wanted. Now, why Matthew gives us such an abbreviated version of the events probably has to do with how thorough Mark was, who's typically very brief. So sometimes they go back and forth. Of course, that assumes that Matthew wrote his gospel after Mark, which is very possible. But it's the ending of Mark that I think is so great in this story. Let me give it to you. It says, and when he got into the boat, 
He who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Now, remember I said Mark and Luke only talk about one person. Well, I think that it's probably because only one of them was really interested in Jesus. Only one pleaded with him. The other one may have been completely indifferent. And in the moment he was delivered from the demon, he might have just ran home. Okay? If you had just come out of something as traumatic as that, you probably, I don't know, you probably wouldn't act completely normal. I don't know. I'm sure you're happy, but what do you do with yourself? So when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And Luke tells us, He went his way and proclaimed throughout the city what great things Jesus had done for him. You see, Jesus was no longer welcome in that area. The, the, the villagers made that very clear. So he would not be the one to go and to proclaim the gospel in, in, in those places. But this man, he was from there. He lived there. He had friends, and I'm sure he had family there. And so it was for him. He had a doorway. He was a walking testimony. You could just imagine that you know, over time, the fears of the people, the tragedy of all this would wear off. But there he was in their midst, in, with clothes on, in his right mind. He's the one to be there over time, with longevity, to share the good news of what God had done for him. And notice, it wasn't what one of the gods of the pagan world had done for him, but Jesus, the one who indeed sets the captives free, who makes demons tremble in his presence, the one who restored my life. Everyone knew him, his former state, that he was wild, that he was dangerous. You guys, his testimony was worth hearing. His story was worth considering. After all the fear wore off, you know people were curious. Dude, what happened to you? I mean, one day, you went all wrong. You were, you were nuts. You were dangerous. You were cutting yourself. You were, it was crazy. And the next moment, you're fine. What happened? His experience was real. You guys, the beautiful thing about it is it was public. It was public. Everybody knew. And so his knowledge of Jesus was personal and it was valuable. You know, the pagan gods of the Gentiles would on occasion show mercy to people, but it was never for the sake of the person. The pagan gods were always up to something. They had an agenda, a trick, a play. They were, they were manipulating, always conniving. But Jesus delivered this man out of pure compassion. He did it because he just loved him. He didn't say, I'll set you free if you serve me all of your days. That's quid pro quo. That's a business proposition. That's not love. You know, Jesus often healed people that never showed him appreciation. He often healed people that didn't even exercise faith, like these two guys. He would oftentimes just come up and heal people. And you know, Jesus would heal people knowing that they would show no appreciation. But because he was moved with compassion, he did it. Not for his own sake, but for theirs. As some theologians have called him, he is the ever others-centered one. He is so unlike the gods of the pagan world. Because Jesus was the greatest story to be told in that village. The greatest story. And so Jesus would not allow him to come with him. He needed to go home. He needed to share the good news of Christ. It's interesting, the same kind of scenario happened 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. It's time for Jesus to depart and go be with his father. And it was time for the disciples 
to go and preach the gospel. It was time to all the nations, the good news of what Jesus had done for them. It had to be shared with the world. Now, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one in differing degrees, in differing degrees, but the whole world does. And this wicked one, he's the one that has blinded the eyes of those who do not believe, Paul says, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine upon them. But because of the work of the gospel in us, his light, his light shines in the darkness through us. It's through us. And it comes out through our testimony. Our testimony of what God has done for us by Jesus' atoning death, his victorious resurrection in the indwelling of the Spirit. That has to be told. Our forgiveness, our redemption, however, whatever we've been set free from, that story needs to be told. It cannot be kept secret. Okay? The world needs the good news that Christ sets the captive free. We do not have a right to contain our story. Amen? We do not. Go ahead and stand with me. Worship team, I think, has one more song. Let's pray. Well, Father, Lord, we thank you for sending your son to walk among us in so many ways to identify with our plight, but Lord, to, to reveal himself, to reveal God to us. So Lord, on the one hand, I just pray that, Lord, you would grant us the ability to understand who Jesus is more. He cannot get more powerful than he is, but we can understand more of his power. He can't become more deified, but we can get a better grip on his deity. Lord, we want to have a greater vision of Christ. We want to be like the disciples who grew in their knowledge of his majesty and who eventually learned to to bow before him. Lord, we want to understand better that you are more powerful than anything and that our lives are safe within your grip. And Lord, also from one revelation to the next of you, Lord, we want to respond appropriately like the demon-possessed man wanted to be with you But, Lord, you had a commission for him to go and to preach. We will be with you. But, Lord, through our testimony, we want to bring as many with us as we can. So, Lord, help us to respond properly to who you are and what you've done. Open our mouths for the sake of others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.